My, uh, my wife and I, we, we live in a house, and we live with our, our three teenage daughters, and the house looks, uh, looks like this. The front door, there's some windows. Anyone an architect here among us? Um, sorry, but uh, so uh, this is uh, the main floor, and there's a uh, there's an upper floor. Looks like this, and there's more windows, and then there's you know some sort of pitched roof like that. And in our house, in the middle of our street, <laughs> so dated myself. I promised myself I wouldn't do that. Um, the, we, most of what we do as a family is right here. Now, there is a basement, and who knows what happens down there, right? But, uh, but this is where we have conversation. This is where we have interaction. This is where we, uh, we have meals together. This is where we discuss, you know, Russian classics and uh, talk about the ironic um, juxtaposition of Gnostic influences and material proliferation. I mean, these are the things we're kidding. That's not what we talk about. They're three teenage daughters. We talk about boys and, and things of that nature. Now, on the main floor is where most of life happens, but there's, there's the, uh, up in the upper part of the house, over here is where my wife and I seek refuge. And it's there that Oftentimes in the morning with a cup of coffee, we're too tired at night, we hardly talk, but in the morning we have a cup of coffee and we'll have conversation. And it's, it's there in, in our room, in the upper part of the house, where we'll dream, where we'll pray, where we'll set kind of the direction for our family and for our home. And when we do that, then we come downstairs, right, and we deliver said direction to our children, such as the time that we decided, in, in part because of this video that we just watched, like we have to put limits in for our children as it relates to technology and phones and the like. Why? Well, because their brains aren't fully developed until they're 25. Why? Because it, all the research points to that it leads to an increase in anxiety and depression and all sorts of things. Why? Because it leads to all sorts of FOMO and, and eating disorders and the whole thing, right? We, we have this big why and, at the, and you drill it all down, it's because we want our daughters to remain human and be fully human. And so we come down and we decided that there was going to be one day out of the week that we weren't going to use our phones. Now we knew we couldn't call it the we're not going to use our phones day, right? So we came up with what I thought was a really clever day. We called it freedom day. Freedom from the tyranny and the shackles of our devices and our phones. Are you with me? Yes, freedom, right? I mean, that was like the rally cry. They did not experience it as such. <laughs> they took it as a different form of, a, of oppression, and, and they're like writhing around on the carpet floor. There's like bodies on the floor, and they're just like completely, they don't know what to do with themselves. Like, like I'd asked them to dig a ditch, you know? And they're like, well, we're, we're, we're going to miss out on all of our activity with our friends, and we're going to do this, and dad, it's, it's boring. And I'm like, boredom is the bedrock of creativity, you know? I'm like, boredom is good. And they're like, they're not buying it. They're dad, you're going to make us Amish. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. So herein lies 
the challenge between the downstairs and the upstairs. Herein lies the challenge between all the high-level thought, dreaming, planning, wisdom, guidance, and all the ways that it works its way or doesn't work its way downstairs to where it actually lives out in reality. And I got to tell you, my wife, Elise, and I, we're, we're oftentimes not great about bringing it down in a way that they can actually understand. And sometimes we bring rules and guidelines down, and then we forget what they are, and it's just confusing half the time to live in our house. I don't know about yours. This isn't all that much unlike what it's like to live in the house of God, in the story and the guidelines and the wisdom that God sets you and I in our day-to-day kind of many lives, little lives, unique and individual lives. We live, we live down here, right? But God is, is up above and there's this beautiful narrative arc and story that sometimes doesn't feel like it makes its way down to you and to me. Would you agree? We just feel like all we have is doom scrolling and challenge and a mess. And Jesus had this struggle. I mean, Jesus struggled with like when he entered into this earth, when he came down from the heavenly realm. And, and laddered down to us and, and dwelt among us. Could you imagine the challenge for Jesus to try to take all that is true in the heavenly realm and the cosmos and then bring the cookies down on the lower shelf down here? I mean, he said as much. He was talking to actually a very astute religious scholar and leader. His name was Nicodemus, who was trying to make, wrap his head around all the things that Jesus was doing and saying. And, and Jesus said, yeah, this isn't easy. He says this to Nicodemus, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Like bringing these two things together, not easy. And in your and my life, not easy as well. So I I have a friend, and he's an author. His name is Randy Frazee. He's written a book called The Story. And what what he calls this up here, this is the upper story. Try again here. This is the upper story. And down here, this is the lower story. What's the upper story of God? It's, well, that God is insatiably love at his core. God is relational and heartsick over the great rebellion of those that he created and called good and very good. And he's heartsick over the brokenness that actually how all creation that he has set into, into beautiful motion groans to this day as a result of sin entering the world. But God said, I'm not done here. I, I refuse to allow this just to be the existence and the way the story ends. I love how Brennan Manning puts it. He goes, you know, sin doesn't mean that uh, brokenness like uh, uh, is, is the end of all. What, what, what really the good news of Jesus, this great story, is that brokenness doesn't get the last word. And God was determined to say, I'm not gonna let sin and a, and a faulty decision have the last word here. I'm gonna ladder down 
to this place where there's all these like people writhing around in pain and in carnage, and I'm going to ultimately walk among them, and I'm going to ultimately give up my life for them. I'm going to take their place, my life for their life. And then, on, and then he does on the cross, and on the third day, he is raised from the dead, and he ascends into the upper, upper, <laughs> you know, story and room. And one day still today promises to return and make all things new, to restore all things that have been lost. That is the upper story by which we live. It's just the the fact is, it doesn't always make its way down to you and me in our day-to-day, at least not in reality, if we're honest. I mean, how many of us have lived with, and you've been on a faith journey, and you've been told that God is love, and you're like... And yet, then why did he let my loved one die? We've been told in the upper story that we are more than conquerors, and then why can't I then kick my addiction? We've been told that we have the power of heaven by way of the Holy Spirit, and why do we still live with the symptoms and the illness? We've been told that there's a plan, that God has a plan in this upper story for our lives, and then why am I just lost in a morass of Tinder or Tumblr and online dating? I've been told that Jesus says, like, my peace I give you, my joy I give you, so that you can be made complete, and yet, how many of us are struggling with anxiety attacks? with mental challenges, if not illness. We've been told that he will overcome the world, and then why does it feel like our world has just lost its freaking mind and has gone in completely insane? Do you see the challenge between the upper story that you might believe, but the lower story that's hard, uh, having difficulty, and the latter in between feels pretty shaky? Give me a head nod if you could just go, yeah, I resonate with that in my life. I resonate with that. Balcony, give me a head nod. That's true. Online community, is that, do you you feel that as well in your life? Holding these two things together, the upper story and the lower story, in a word, is resilience. It's resilience. Really, the scriptural word would be uh, perseverance. How do we hold those two things that are altogether true? How do these stories stay together? What we don't want us to do is deny all of this and just believe in la-la land. God is love, and I'm just going to deny the fact that I don't feel his love right now. We can't do that. I I just want to validate and give you permission to say, This is hard, and this is real, but it might not be the only part. Maybe there's something larger that I just can't see right here and now. And you look through the scriptures. I mean, every single person as I look, you know, like, and the greats, like the great, like the super, the super ones in the Bible that we kind of think, well, they're, they're like Bible people. They didn't struggle with this. Oh, Yeah. Take King David, for example. King David, uh, it was foretold that it would be through his line, his dynasty as a king, his lineage, that the ultimate rescuer of the world would come. 
that all people would be blessed through, through David. That would be part of this beautiful upper story that, that, that we have as believers would be through King David. But what was going down in his life? Do you know about King David? Let me just ask you, for those of you who know the story, it's okay if you don't. Uh, good dad, bad dad. Really messed up dad, deadbeat dad. Good husband, bad husband. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he had good moments. I mean, basically, David is like you and me all the time. I am a good dad, except for when I'm not. I am a good husband, except for when I'm not a good husband. He has the both end of it all, just like you and I. But I mean, you looked up, you look at what's going on in his house, jacked up. There should be a reality TV show. There should be a Netflix series on David. It's just Christians couldn't go and watch it. I'm serious. Um, so there's adultery, there's murder, there's incest, rape, uh, and that's not even including um, how his own son tries to take him out, challenge him for the throne. I mean, there's just, just stuff. And if David's not holding on to the upper story for his, his own life and for his, his own self and for all that he has, that's been put in his stewardship and care, and care he would just quit. I mean, that, like if, if all he was left was to the doom scrolling of his day, oh my goodness. And so you look at some of what he wrote, and it's, it's stunning. I don't know when he wrote this. I'm just going to take you to a, um, a song. It's a poem. It's called Psalm 13. And I want you to feel what he's doing here. I'm just going to read the whole thing. I, I, I just want you to receive it. We'll chunk it here for you in a moment. But here, here's David trying to connect and ladder between the lower story and the upper story. How long, Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer. Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But this is the latter part. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You see what David's doing there? He's trying to ladder up. He's practicing a biblical resilience. And I just want to offer four things what resilience does. Number one, resilience refuses to say all the right things on the outside while quietly dying on the inside. I think there is a, an inertia towards all of us just trying to put on a happy face. And I think that's most palpable in a church setting. 
By the way, I will say I think Shoal Creek is one of the most refreshing expressions of the body of Christ for your ability to be exactly who you are, where you are. I, I have the opportunity to speak in a lot of places, be among a lot of different church communities. I've never seen a Shoal Creek. By the way, that there is a freedom to be truly authentic in yourself. There is a powerful tendency, however, in our lives is just to put the mask on, say all the right things on the outside. In this context, what's the right things? All the upper story stuff. God loves me. It's all going to work out in the end, all that stuff. But inside to be dying and to not be squaring up with all that's going on in the lower story of your life. But look at David. What does David do? He starts there unapologetically. He takes God to the task. If you've ever been mad at God, I hope you have, by the way. I hope you've been mad at God. Why, why do I say that? Because when you're mad at God, you know what? I think that's one of the deepest, most profound expressions of faith there is. Because when you're mad at God, you're saying, I know you can do something about this. When you're mad at God, you're saying, this isn't right. And I believe in you so deeply that you're not showing. See, if you didn't believe so profoundly and so deeply in God, you wouldn't be as mad at him because you wouldn't expect much from him. Does that make sense? So resilience refuses to just say the right things on the outside and quietly die on the inside. We've got to get it out. King David gets it out. How long? How long? How long? Where are you? In Shoal Creek terms, I think we would paraphrase this as, what the hell, God? And if you need to write a letter or email of complaint about my use of vulgar language, it is Roy Moran's birthday today, and you can send it to him. <laughs> we love you, Roy. Just don't check your email this week. We gotta have those, those, those moments, those gritty, those honest moments, and resilience, biblical resilience would require that. Number two, resilience refuses to project your experience or circumstances onto the character of God. It's so tempting to do. To say, this is happening on the lower story of my life. And I feel all sprawled out on the carpet just like a mess. And this must mean that God is X, right? But what, is, what does David do? He, you know, he puts God out, you know, takes him on, what's the expression? Takes him on the carpet, is that right? That doesn't, something about that doesn't sound right. Takes him to task. Calls him to the carpet. That's what he does, right? He calls him to the carpet. But look at this swing hinge moment. Verse 5, but, but, uh, we all need a conjunction like that. We all, and this is, he's marrying, he's laddering up right now. He's, he's being brutally honest on the lower story, and now he's ready to climb the ladder with one word, but. But I trust in your unfailing love. What, what if, um, what if all David did was stop at verse 4? See, I think this is, 
This is the danger of doom scrolling, by the way. Doom scrolling just simply, uh, I was going to see if I had an eraser. Doom scrolling denies that there's any upper story. If all we have is this, well, actually, Paul, Paul, Paul puts it very point blank. Like, if all we have is this and Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're fools. And for a world without God, that's all they have is a doom scroll. What did the guy say? You, you want to be informed so you feel like you're sharpening the sword and then you end up turning it on yourself. I think this amount of godlike data that we are bombarded with every day is leading to such level of pathology in our mental well-being that we have no idea. We're putting the words in, in our dictionary, like, did you notice that doom scrolling is now, as of like last year, it's now an official word by Webster. But I fathom, I fathom, fathom, I, um, I shudder to think what the data is going to say five years from now, 20 years from now by a world living with nothing but a bombardment of news and no upper story. David had an upper story, and he clings to it. And I don't know how much he even believes in it as he's writing it. Can I say that? I think he, he is probably saying it as a reminder to his own soul that feels so frail and thin right now. He's going to say something that he hopes he believes more deeply later. And we need to do that too. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Can you hold that together? Where are you, God? How long, how long, how long for you have been good to me? Do you see how he's holding that together and he's saying, I'm not going to project my circumstances onto your character. I'm going to believe that your character is unfailing love. I'm going to believe that just as you've been good to me in the past, you'll be good to me again. I hope this ladder holds. I was in Guatemala and uh, I just saw this graffiti on a wall or a sign and it said, if I remember in my really bad Spanish, it said, yo creo en Dios más que en mi experiencia, which is I believe in God more than in my experience. How's that for a level of faith? Now, if you're sitting there going, well, why do I believe if it's not matching my, my reality? This is where we have to hold the longer arc of the story. How many of you have found yourself in a moment prior that made no sense, but it does today. And you're like, oh. And, and for my own daughters, when we rolled out Freedom Day, which by the way, didn't have a, a, a strong staying power in our home. <laughs> We've had to pivot a few times. And yet I've seen my daughters making um, their own decisions about 
healthy phone boundaries and the like because it's making more sense to them now. So our hindsight is essentially God's foresight. You tracking with me? Our hindsight, our ability to look back and go, oh, I see it now, is God's ability to see all things in real time, future, past, present, and the like, because he he exists and stands outside of time. And so for us to take him to task, we have to do that in an emotive way like David is doing, but also to hold out the fact that I can't see the whole story here and now. And that's called being resilient. Number three, resilience refuses to question our value to God. Not just about our circumstances, but how easy could it be to say, God, I don't feel you, I don't see you. That must mean you don't love me. That must mean you don't care for me. That must mean that I don't have value in your eyes. It seems like when I scroll, everyone else is having a really nice time, but not me. What does David do? He personalizes it. This isn't just a God who set a clock and is in charge somehow out there in the uh, ethereal spaces. This is a God who intimately knows him and loves him. But I trust in your unfailing love for you have been good to me. And the, the last, last thing here about resilience is that resilience refuses to lose the plot. Resilience in that gritty place refuses to say, I'm just going to live with my lower story. And this takes such gritty faith to say, I believe that there is a, there, there's a ladder, there's stairs here that I can walk up, and it is a true story. I'm going to live under it. I'm not going to lose the plot of my life. If I lose the fact that there is an upper story for my life and for the story of the world, well, then I'll just be lost, as Jesus would say, in that there are, are uh, wars and rumors of war, and, and it sucks to be you, and we better just drink, eat, be merry, and die. Eugene Peterson, one of the, one of the heroes of the last century of, of faith and, and authorship and scholarship and pastoring, here's what he talks about, the power of holding on and not losing the plot. Here's what he says. Stories invite us into a world larger than ourselves. We're storytelling people and our lives are stories. They have plot, they have intent, and they have other people. And the Bible is our greatest story. If we just live within ourselves, or if our lives are determined by our own needs, our wants, or our desires, it's a very small world. Don't lose the plot. It is so grand, it is so beautiful, it is so elegant, and it's the most important thing that we have as human beings. It's actually, um, narrative psychology would suggest that those who hold to to the highest narrative beyond their own lives are gonna become the healthiest people. I wanted to share with you here as we, as, we, as we wrap a story 
um, of uh, a new friend. I just met him. His name is Wes. Uh, we had coffee maybe two months ago. And um, he's a former professional basketball player. Um, not like on the level of LeBron James kind of thing, because I'd never met him. I, did, I didn't recognize him, you know. But he'd, uh, he'd played some pretty serious ball in his day. And he shared with me his story when he was, I want to say about four or five his father was doing hard time in prison. His mom was an addict. And she just wanted to get rid of him and his sister. Someone told his mom, well, there's this, there's this kind of elderly couple in the neighborhood. They'll watch your kids. So she takes Wes and Wes's sister, drops them off with this elderly couple that she had almost never hardly met, says she'll be back in a few hours and those hours turn to days, to weeks, to months. Wes finds himself with this elderly couple for a while. They can't, they can't raise these two children, so he's placed into the foster care system where he didn't go into much detail, but intimated that there were deep atrocities, trespasses, and abuses that, that happened in his story, such that the only place of belonging he could find was within... Uh, a gang. And so by seventh or eighth grade, he said, Dan, we and I had been doing things that, um, you know, would fall at the felonious, the, the, the felon-like level and to the nth degree. I mean, had barely even been in middle school. When his um, father gets out of prison, his dad comes and finds him. And Wes wants nothing to do with his dad. By the way, as I'm telling this story, I want you to just keep thinking about the lower story and the upper story. Wants nothing to do with his dad. His dad grew up in a different part of town in a neighborhood that um, was kind of run by the rival gang that Wes was in. And in fact, his dad was a hero by that gang. I presume his dad was a part of that gang, was a, a gang leader and all of that stuff. So he gets out of prison, comes find Wes. Wes wants nothing to do with him. He says, I don't care. You're coming with me. Takes him to the other part of town, which is the rival gang of this town. Sits him on a park bench right next to a basketball court. Wes had never played basketball in his life. Wasn't an athlete at all. And his dad sits beside him on the park bench and tries to talk to him. And Wes won't even look at him. Won't, Wes won't say a word. Wes like, I'm just going to leave. You know, he's, he's like, I was just a seventh, eighth grader. And his dad said, well, that's fine, but before you leave, you might want to just look around. And so Wes starts to look around, and he sees all the rival gang members brandishing weapons. And he said, the only reason that you're still alive here, son, is because you're with me. So you might as well just sit here, and you, you can decide whether you listen or you don't listen, but... We're going to spend some time together. His dad would then go pick up a basketball, shoot, shoot some buckets, and just talk to his son. Somehow, I don't know how this exactly happened, but Wes was reunited with this elderly couple that first took him in, and they loved Jesus. And somehow, Wes's own dad meets this elderly couple and gives his life to Jesus. And then begins to say... I want to go back into the prison where I served hard time to tell 
all of my inmates about this Jesus that I've met. And that was his goal until he died of cardiac arrest suddenly and without notice. And now Wes is fatherless again. And he says, Dan, I don't know how I, I don't know how I got there, but I was sitting there trying to figure out my life and I found myself at the same park bench that my dad would force me to sit with him and talk while he shot baskets. And he said, I'm sitting on that park bench. He said, I'm, I'm literally in the eighth grade, but I'm trying to figure out who do I want to be? Where do I want to go with my life? And there's a basketball leaned up against the fence. And he said, so for the first time, I picked up this basketball. And I took a shot. And then I took another. And he said, what I hadn't realized is I'd been watching my dad so much more than I realized. I'd been listening to my dad so much more than I acknowledged. And I, the more I shot, the more I realized I had the same form that my dad had. I had the same moves. I had the same touch. And he said, and I fell in love with this game in the, in the eighth grade. And he says, and then through the influence of this elderly couple, I fell in love with the same Jesus that my dad did. And that changed my entire trajectory of my life. And I went on to play professional basketball. And now, he said, I, I, I go into schools and hardened areas. I know them. They quickly, we just know that we know that I've got a hard life in my lower story, and they've got a hard life in their lower story, and so I have street cred to be able to offer them the upper story, my language, not his. To the point, he said, where one day I decided I was going to go to that state penitentiary that my father served in, and I got to be the one to tell them about this Jesus that my da dad died loving. How cool is that? And as we were wrapping up our coffee, his son um, FaceTimes him. His son's in, I think, the eighth grade. And they have this quick conversation. And he says, hey, son, I love you. Who are you? And his son says, I'm a child of God, a masterpiece born to do great things things. You see what Wes is doing? All that time, all those David-like moments of who knows what happened in the lower story of his life, but over the long arc, the long narrative, over the grace and the power of an empty grave. An elderly couple helps him ladder up. His father comes and just patiently sits with him. And the larger narrative, the upper story begins to materialize. And he now today is a transitional healer for his own son who can today, every day be reminded that it's not just a lower story, but the upper story is that he is a child of God, a masterpiece born to do great things for the kingdom of God. Is that not amazing and beautiful and true for you and I?
I don't know where you are. I don't know where you sit right now in your life. But there is an upper story. Just like there's been for for so many others throughout time and through the biblical story. I want to just leave you with this verse before I pray over us here from Hebrews. It says this about all the biblical greats who could have been so lost and forget that there was an upper story. From Hebrews 11, it says this. These people, all the greats, were commended for their, let's just say resilience. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That is the largest story, the grandest adventure that you and I are invited in. If you can't see it here today, and there might even be a moment you can't see it this side of heaven, there is a heavenly realm. There is a Father who loves you and invites you to ladder up and hold fiercely with right now, all the grit you can muster to his story because it will inform, shape, and change yours. And so, Heavenly Father, we just ask that your spirit would come. And right now, speak to those of us who have been dwelling on a lower story and have forgotten the upper one. Those right now, God, who are angry at you and need to just let you know. Those who right now have been too afraid to acknowledge their pain because they think it will undermine their faith. Those who right now need to know that you have not forgotten them, you have not forsaken them, that you do have a plan over their lives and over the life of all creation. But we say together, we trust in your unfailing love. But we say together, in spite of all these things, we trust in your unfailing love. But we say together, we trust in your unfailing love.